From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, Ron Elving on a week which saw a former U.S. president arrested, fingerprinted, and charged. Also, Thomas Grove of the Wall Street Journal, who sensed his colleague, detained reporter Evan Gershkovich, was in trouble in Moscow. By the time late afternoon and early evening came around and I hadn't heard from him, I, of course, had the strong feeling that something had gone wrong. And later, Hong Chao on Showing Up, a film drawn from the lives of aspiring anxious artists. And NPR's Mary Louise Kelly and her new book, It Goes So Fast, on trying to help anchor two growing sons and breaking news at the same time. First, our newscast, it's Saturday, April 8, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. President Biden is condemning the move by a federal judge in Texas to invalidate the FDA's approval of the abortion pill Mifepristone decades after it first came into use. In a statement, Biden criticized the court for substituting its own judgment over the FDA, the expert agency that approves drugs in the United States. He wrote, and I quote here, if this ruling were to stand, then there will be virtually no prescription approved by the FDA that would be safe from these kinds of political ideological attacks. Biden also warned that this decision is a step toward the national ban on abortion Republican lawmakers have wanted. He cautioned that if it holds, it could have far-reaching implications beyond the borders of Texas. It could prevent women all across the country from accessing the pills, regardless of whether abortion is legal in their state. Asma Khalid, NPR News. The Biden administration is rallying to the side of Democratic state lawmakers who faced expulsion from the GOP-controlled Tennessee legislature for their conduct last week in a debate about gun control. Two, both black, Justin Pearson and Justin Jones were expelled. A third legislator, Gloria Johnson, who is white, narrowly survived an effort to expel her. Vice President Kamala Harris told an audience at Fisk University yesterday. Our children are being traumatized by this fear. Parents are wondering and asking and praying every time they send their child to school or take their child to school, that their baby might come home safe. The three Tennessee Democrats had joined in a public demonstration calling for gun control, but deemed in breach of chamber rules last week. The protest came a week after six people were gunned down at the Covenant School in Nashville. China says it will conduct military drills around Taiwan from today through Monday. The announcement comes just days after Taiwan's president was in the U.S., where she met House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. As NPR's John Ruich reports, Beijing had been warning of retaliation. The Chinese military said in a statement the live-fire combat readiness drills and patrols would take place in the air and sea in the Taiwan Strait, as well as to the north, south, and east of the self-governed island. Beijing considers Taiwan a part of China and hopes to unite it with the mainland eventually, by force if necessary. The Chinese government expressed anger over recent transit stops in the United States by Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen, including one this week in California, where she met McCarthy and other U.S. lawmakers. In August, after former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi traveled to Taiwan to meet Tsai. China launched similar military drills encircling the island and raising geopolitical tensions. John Ruich, NPR News. This is NPR News in Washington.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Abortion remains legal in Massachusetts. However, dueling federal court rulings late yesterday about an abortion pill may disrupt access. WBUR's Martha Bevinger reports. A federal judge in Washington state said the FDA must not change access to one of two commonly used abortion pills. But a federal judge in Texas ordered the FDA to suspend approval of that medication. It's playing with our lives in a really disgusting and disingenuous way. Rebecca Hartholder, who leads the abortion rights group Reproductive Equity Now, says confusion can be dangerous. People are not going to know what's legal, what's not legal, what they can access, when they can access, and who they can go to access care. Local anti-abortion rights groups say they are hopeful the Texas ruling will limit access to abortion in Massachusetts. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. New state funding will help people who are deaf or hard of hearing to get substance addiction treatment and support. The $1.1 million grant will be shared by three substance use disorder centers to improve access to care. The Massachusetts Commission for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing says a communication barrier has made it hard for people to get addiction services. Stop and Shop is reversing its plan to close its only store in Brockton. Residents and city officials argued for the location to stay in business because so many people relied on it. This past winter, the Quincy-based grocery chain said it planned to shut down its store on North Montello Street because of a hike in rent. But now Stop and Shop says it has decided to keep the supermarket open after talks with the Brockton mayor and the property owner. In sports last night, the Celtics beat the Raptors 121 to 102 this afternoon in Detroit. The Red Sox face the Tigers. Tonight at the Garden, the Bruins play the New Jersey Devils. And in Foxborough tonight, the Revs host Montreal. It's 36 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today. Highs in the upper 40s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Our Journey with La Mer, a world premiere about ocean preservation by choreographer Nanine Linning, now through April 16th. BostonBallet.org, and the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon, and thanks for joining us. Dueling decisions from the federal bench last night. So is confusion about access to a widely used anti-abortion pill. Widely used abortion pill. A federal judge in Texas has blocked FDA approval of mifepristone. While in Washington state, another judge has said essentially the opposite. The decisions came within hours of each other. The Biden administration says it is appealing the Texas case. And Pierre Sarah McCammon joins us now. Sarah, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, good morning. Tell us about these two cases. Well, they center around the Food and Drug Administration's approval of the abortion pill mifepristone way back in 2000. Now, it's always been at the center of political debate because it is primarily used to induce abortion in the first trimester. And in the first case in Texas, a federal judge issued a nationwide injunction putting the FDA approval of mifepristone on hold. And that came in response to a lawsuit that was filed by anti-abortion rights groups. That judge was appointed by former President Trump and had been widely expected to side with those groups. 
Now, the second decision involves a case filed in federal court in Washington state. There, a Democratic attorneys general from 17 states and the District of Columbia asked another judge to essentially do the opposite. And that judge sided with them and issued a ruling that would allow continued access to this drug. There's a one week uh, waiting period to allow for an appeal. If that time goes by without an appeals court weighing in, which of these two decisions apply? Well, some groups who oppose abortion rights are already arguing that because of the way these decisions are written, the nationwide injunction from the Texas judge blocking access to Mifepristone would prevail. But I spoke with Washington's Democratic Attorney General Bob Ferguson, one of the leaders of that group of states that's been working to preserve access. He thinks it would come down to what state you live in. If you live in Washington state or one of the 17 states that join Washington in our lawsuit here in Washington state, then the judge's ruling in our case preserves the status quo on ensuring that access to mifepristone remains available. If, however, you're one of the other 32 states, the Texas judge's ruling seriously has the potential to eliminate that access for mifepristone here in the coming days. And I should point out, Scott, many of those other states, including Texas, already have banned abortion. But for the rest, this could mean doctors could no longer prescribe what has become the dominant method of abortion in the U.S. So the appeals process, what comes next? The White House is vowing to fight this Texas judge's decision. Attorney General Merrick Garland filed an appeal with the Fifth Circuit last night. That circuit has a reputation, by the way, for being very conservative. Lawyers on both sides of this case say it is likely to move fast and it may not end at the Fifth Circuit. Here's Katie Glenn Daniel with Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America. Everyone's eyes are now kind of pointed back towards D.C. We anticipate that eventually, whether it is the merits of this case or these injunctions, now dueling injunctions, that the Supreme Court will have to weigh in in some way. Sarah, you mentioned that uh, mifepristone is, is so widely used. What other options might be available if the nationwide injunction ultimately prevails. Abortion providers have been preparing for this, stocking up on a second drug called misoprostol. It's used alongside mifepristone, and it can be used alone to induce abortion, but it is not the preferred protocol in the U.S. It's also possible to get abortion pills online through suppliers outside the U.S., but a lot of patients worry about potential legal risks with that. And Pierre Sarah McCammon, thanks so much. Thank you. You probably saw the photos. Donald Trump, former president of the United States, sitting in a New York courtroom Tuesday, facing a 34-count felony indictment. He pleaded not guilty, flew back to Florida to make a 25-minute statement that same night, reviving many of his old grievances, repeating false claims of election interference. And Bear senior editor and correspondent Ron Elving joins us. Ron, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. Let me ask first about the indictment. Even some of Donald Trump's critics, including uh, Senator Mitt Romney and former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, seem to have their doubts about the strength of the case. Do you think they have a point? They might. There are links within the case that uh, defense attorneys can attack. There are links that escalate what appear to be misdemeanors for falsifying financial filings into 34 felony charges, as you say. We have not seen all of the case, however, and we have not seen all of the evidence at this point. District Attorney Alvin Bragg may have a high card. He is not showing. But for now, it seems fair to say that in this case, it's less compelling than the one in Georgia involving Trump's efforts to alter the vote count in that state. And it does not look as provable as the federal case is based on the documents found at his Mar-a-Lago estate and the role that Trump played on January 6th. So those cases involve 
visible and audible evidence more people can easily relate to. ProPublica investigation this week found that Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas did not disclose posh vacations and flights on private planes paid for by a billionaire friend. The justice released a statement uh, yesterday saying he was advised this sort of personal hospitality uh, is not reportable. Uh, are there avenues for investigation for an ethics violation involving a Supreme Court justice? Yes, there is an avenue, and there is enough will to investigate and legislate on these revelations, at least in the Senate. And Thomas says he did not have to report these trips because he and his wife and Harlan Crow were great friends and that these gifts were therefore exempt. Uh, he also said that uh, he had never ruled on anything directly affecting Crow, and now that the Supreme Court has changed its own guidelines on accepting gifts, he will respect those new guidelines going forward. So it's not yet clear what consequences might be involved here. The high court does not have a mechanism for removing a justice. It doesn't really even subject itself to the rules it subjects other federal judges to. And while Congress can impeach a federal judge, it's never done that at the Supreme Court level. The Tennessee House of Representatives uh, this week expelled two of their own duly elected members over participating in gun control protests on the House floor last month. Their offense was that they spoke without being recognized. Uh, both representatives who were expelled are black. A third, a white representative, was not voted out. What are the implications here? Those districts are going to be unrepresented until the next election, and when there is another election, uh, both Justin Pearson and Jason Jones, uh, Justin, excuse me, J Jones, will very likely be reelected. Uh, they're going to be heroes. They're going to be martyrs. And their colleague, Democrat Gloria Johnson, was not expelled. The difference was that one legislator who changed his vote regarding Johnson and he prevented a two-thirds vote to remove her, he explained to NPR last night that uh, Johnson had legal representation and that that lawyer raised procedural questions that changed his mind uh, and he denied that it had anything at all to do with race. And, Ron, let me get your estimation this week about the significance uh, of elections in Wisconsin where Democrats voted in a liberal judge and that flipped control of the state Supreme Court of the state Supreme Court there. It was a stunning outcome, Scott. A double-digit win in a race that was thought to be close. Uh, two big impacts here. The new court majority in Wisconsin is expected to overturn Wisconsin's current abortion ban, a law that dates to 1849 and that took effect when the U.S. Supreme Court threw out Roe v. Wade. The new court is expected to strike down one of the most egregious gerrymandering cases in recent years as well. That's allowed Republicans to hold supermajorities in the state legislature with only half the statewide vote or less. People may become more aware of gerrymandering in elections going forward. NPR's Ron Elving, thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. Just when you think we might have more than enough to worry about, something else appears. Super pigs. Researchers at the University of Saskatchewan's Canadian Wild Pig Research Project have told Field and Stream that these invasive hybrids of domestic pigs and European wild boars now roam over hundreds of thousands of square miles of central Canada. And they've begun to cross into the United States. I'm amazed, by the way, that algorithms pushed articles from Field and Stream to my newsfeed. Field and Stream is an online magazine for people who hike, hunt, fish, camp, and love the outdoors. Essentially, everyone but me. 
But I clicked and learned that these wild super pigs were bred by farmers to thrive in the extreme winters of the Canadian prairies. Large body animals survive the cold better and have better reproduction in those conditions. Dr. Ryan Brook of the Wild Pig Research Project told Field and Stream, whose site I have now bookmarked. But larger bodies and more prolific reproduction created new problems. Progress often does. The larger pigs began to meet, date, discover mutual interests, fall in love, and start families. I am perhaps being a touch romantic here. To quote the original Jurassic Park movie, Life, uh, finds a way. A population of wild super pigs began to swell. Inevitably, some of the pigs broke through their fencing. Now they prowl the prairies, and they're hungry. Wild super pigs are not fussy eaters who ask, uh, excuse me, chef, are these scallions or ramps? Wild hogs feed on anything, says Dr. Brooke. They gobble up tons and tons of goslings and ducklings in the spring. They can take down a white-tailed deer, even an adult, not to mention the crop damage. Dr. Brooke says it would be impossible to eradicate the super pigs, but researchers in the U.S. and Canada have begun a program they call Squeal on Pigs, which urges people to report any wild pig they may glimpse, say while walking the dog or outside the Denny's, and they have fixed GPS collars around some to track them back to their friends. <laughs> Who's squealing now? Experts thought crossbreeding domestic pigs with wild boars would develop a hardy new stock, but now these super pigs range so freely and wreak so much mayhem it might remind us that bold new solutions to current problems often shine brightest on paper, on screen, or in a lab. Then they run smack into real life. What? A pig? Oh, you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up in a few minutes, a conversation with NPR's Mary Louise Kelly about her new memoir, It Goes So Fast, The Year of No Do-Overs. That and more ahead on Weekend Edition. And keep in mind, it's convenient to listen anywhere with the new WBUR app. Tap and listen when and how you want. Download or update in your app store now. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. WBUR supporters include Boston University's College of Fine Arts. Presenting the acclaimed novelist Marilyn Robinson, April 11th at 6.30 p.m. in the Photonics Building. Admission is free. Reservations are required at robinsonbu.eventbrite.com. And the Jewish Arts Collaborative, bringing Jewish culture to life for us all, in person and online. Visit jartsboston.org for events and resources. I'm Luis Schiavone with these headlines. President Biden is condemning the move by a federal judge in Texas to invalidate the FDA's approval of the abortion pill Mifepristone. The ruling has been stayed for a week pending expected appeal. The Biden administration is rallying to the side of Democratic state lawmakers who faced expulsion from the GOP-controlled Tennessee legislature for their conduct last week in a debate about gun control. 
China says it will conduct military drills around Taiwan between today and Monday, this days after Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen was in the U.S., where she met House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and other American lawmakers. I'm Luis Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens to help gardeners express their creativity outdoors. At garden centers nationwide, provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. And from the Pew Charitable Trusts, now sharing stories and solutions from the front lines of America's mental health crisis on the After the Fact podcast. Available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. It has been 10 days since Wall Street Journal correspondent Evan Gerskovich was arrested by Russian authorities and accused of spying. He was detained during a reporting trip to the provincial city of Yekaterinburg and could face up to 20 years in prison if convicted. The journal denies he's a spy. President Joe Biden has bluntly told Moscow, let him go. One of Evan Gerskovich's closest colleagues is Thomas Grove. He covers Eastern Europe for The Wall Street Journal and joins us now from Warsaw. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. You must be very concerned, as many people are. Do you have any word about uh, Evan Gerskovich's welfare while he's in, in prison? Well, uh, we do know that he was able to see a lawyer and others have also seen him and he's said to be in good spirits. He's laughing, cracking jokes as, you know, the kind of Evan that we know him to be. So, you know, obviously there's lots of questions to be answered and, you know, about his well-being and, and about the path forward, but we have made at least initial contact. I understand you were working with Evan Gerskovich on his latest story, when you realized something had gone wrong. May we ask you what happened? As as we normally do, we were keeping in touch on an almost daily basis, and he was flying into Yekaterinburg, and I messaged him early in the day just to, just to say hi and asked him to let me know how it goes, uh, just shoot me a message after after everything was over. And, and by the time late afternoon and early evening came around and I hadn't heard from him, I of course, had the strong feeling that something had gone wrong and uh, reached out to him, reached out to our security folks, and uh, we started getting the search going then. What kind of reporter has Evan Gerskovich been? He's been an incredibly sensitive reporter who's able to really flesh out the nuances of Russian society, you know, what pressures people are under. He's able to understand these very well, I think, partly because of his own his own background but also because he had spent so much time in, in Russia and, and he was, you know, very attuned to the way people thought. Is there Russian in uh, Mr. Gershkovich's background? So Mr. Gershkovich has, a, has a, a very interesting family history and one in which his, his mother and father were both Jews who left the Soviet Union and went to the United States and, and met there. And so he grew up speaking Russian and he was he grew up in the kind of Russian milieu that, that had, you know, formed in, in the United States. And 
I think that was a lot of what kind of caused him to to get this Russian bug and to to try to understand his own culture and the one that his family came from a little bit deeper. Did he ever consider leaving, saying there must be a must be an opening in Paris? No, he was dedicated to to his work on Russia, and I think he he realized the stakes were extremely high now, and and that the reporting that he was able to do was. It was just of, of the utmost importance. It was, you know, one of the few lights that, you know, we were able to shine on on this very important, fast-changing, um, and increasingly hostile country. I guess 200 Russian journalists and activists have written a letter to demand his release. And uh, people in the U.S. have begun an I Stand with Evan social media campaign. Based on your own experience, does that help? Is it heartening? I, I think it's extremely heartening, and it's extremely wonderful to see all the support that has that has been rallied around Evan and and what he's going through right now. Um, I, I just want to see more of it, and I I really hope that it, you know, puts pressure on all the right places to uh, to get him out as soon as possible. Mm. Mr. Grove, based on your own experience, what kind of ripple effect is there from the arrest of a Wall Street Journal reporter, in this case, Evan Gerskovich in Moscow? Does it uh... Does it deter others? Unfortunately, I think it really does. And I think what we're going to be seeing is a, a, a slow pullback from the Western media on Russia coverage, which I think is in nobody's interest, uh, neither Russia's nor the United States. But I think fewer journalists will be willing to take the risk. And and I think, sadly, we'll, we'll see fewer sources on the ground willing to talk to Western journalists as well. You know, for fear of getting implicated in, in what you know, a, a similar case. Thomas Grove of the Wall Street Journal. Thank you so much for being with us. Great. Thank you for having me. Most parents, mothers especially, probably gotten a call from a school saying your child is sick. Come get them. That what if you're boarding a Black Hawk helicopter in Baghdad? Mary Louise Kelly, our esteemed colleague and co-host of a show called. Um, all things considered, contends with the balance between work and life, anchoring the news and anchoring a family with two teen sons growing up in her new book, It Goes So Fast, The Year of No Do-Overs. And I'm teary just reading the intro. (laughs) Mary Louise Kelly joins us in our studios. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. What was that like to get a call like that? Yeah, we're about to get loaded up into a a swarm of Black Hawk helicopters. Phone rings, school nurse telling me, your son is sick. Where are you? Can you you come to school? And I'm thinking, lady, if you you can see where I am, no, that's not happening. And she started talking more loudly and said, I don't mean to bring him home. I mean, he's really sick. He's struggling to breathe. We need to get him to a doctor or a hospital. Now, where are you? And I was trying to answer, and the cell phone died. Uh, We lost signal, and I have to get into this helicopter. And I will never forget sitting there in the Blackhawk, looking down over the traffic of Baghdad and thinking, what am I doing? Mm -hmm. I'm good at my job. I worked really hard to get here. I love my work. But my four-year-old son needs me, and I'm halfway around the world. Mm. And I I hit a wall. When two things that you love and sustain you come into conflict, mm-hmm. what do you do? Yeah. Yeah. And let's make make plain. Your son Alexander is it was then four, healthy and strong now. Yeah. 
But there's an almost audible clock ticking through some of this memoir. And as you say, you go from counting months to weeks and days. Yeah. I started really thinking about writing this book when it dawned on me that James, my oldest, was about to be a senior in high school. He was going to go out and spread his wings in the world, which of course is what you want. But it suddenly occurred to me, it's finite. You know, the number of nights when my nuclear family is going to be under this roof, they're dwindling. And the example that I just kept circling and coming around to was James has loved soccer since he could walk and this has been his thing. And he was a starting striker on his high school varsity team and their games tend to be weekdays around four o'clock. I think you have a prior obligation. I have a conflict at four o'clock on weekdays, which is that is the to the minute when all things considered goes on the air. And so when there were hundreds of games it felt relatively easy to say, okay, I'll be there next year, I'll be there next year. And then suddenly I was out of next year's. I didn't have any more do-overs. And suddenly I thought I'd rather cut off my right arm than miss another game. You've got a phrase in here, life is what we choose to see. I ran into, it was a competitor from another news organization who'd covered the same national security beat as I had. And when I ran into her, I was taking a long spell away from the newsroom to be with my kids. And I looked like it. <laughs> I was wearing, like, well, yeah, what he had banana in your hair. Or I had right? applesauce yeah. in my hair. Applesauce, Thank you for sorry. reminding me. Yeah. Yes. And she looked the way she always had in this killer suit and killer heels. And we chatted for a few minutes. She didn't recognize me, Scott. She didn't recognize me. I looked so different from what she used to see. And then she gets in a taxi and goes to the White House for an interview. And right. I stood there stricken on the sidewalk thinking, I'm not sure I recognize myself. And it was only, it was a while before I ran into her again, by which point I had gone back to work, bumped into her on the sidewalk again. She recognized me. We chatted for a few minutes. And as we're turning to go our separate ways, she said, you know, I cried all day after that last time I ran, to, ran into you. And I said, what? Really? Why? Because you, you had it all. You, you had the whole thing going. And she said, no, you, you and your son were on your way to the park and it was this beautiful day and I had just dropped my own child at daycare and I was off to, you know, go do some interview with somebody that I've already forgotten even what the subject was and I was paying some stranger at daycare to take my baby to the park and I thought, what am I doing with my life? And I looked at her and thought, God, you and me both. We've both been beating ourselves up for not being able to do the impossible. You can't be in two places at once. You point out in the book that you you had the advantage of a nanny and for that matter, a mother. Could you tell us what she told you when you were able to see a soccer game? Oh, it was not just any soccer game. The soccer game in question was James's senior year. It was for the state championship. He scored with a header with three minutes on the clock. It was the goal, the goal that he will remember, our family will remember, the school will remember. It was, it was, Fabulous. And as I was driving home, I called my mom to tell her about it and how wonderful it had been. And she listened and listened. And the first thing she said wasn't about James or the team or the soccer. It was for me, you know, for her own baby. And she said, oh, and you got to see it because she knows how many I've missed and how much it meant to see that goal. Yeah. We should explain. Of course, you've done wonderful reporting from Ukraine, but at, at one point, Fairly recently, you decided 
not to go back, right? I was asked to, uh, after my first rotation through Ukraine, to go back through. And not entirely clear when you're going into a war zone. It's not like you can say, well, as long as I'm out by Tuesday at 9 a.m. And the precise times that they were asking for lined up with James's very last weeks of high school. And the journalist in me was clawing my suitcase off the shelf to pack. And the mom in me thought, yeah, but sadly, there's always going to be a war out there. And Mm -hmm. there are other journalists who can cover it. But there's nobody else who can be a mom to this boy. And he's only here for a few more weeks. And it's senior prom. And it's exams. And it's the last time. And I thought, yeah, I need to sit this one out. Yeah. A lot of this book is becoming aware of this might be the last time something happens when we have children. Yeah. Yes, it's the stuff that maybe you can plan on a calendar, but it's also you don't you know when the last time they might crawl into your lap. Yeah, or the last time they're going to call you mama or daddy instead of mom or dad because they get teased at school. And I think about those moments. I remember I didn't actually write about this, but it pops into my head now. I remember the last time I nursed a baby. I breastfed both my sons, and I remember, you know, as Alexander was you know, crawling off my lap. And I remember so clearly where we were in the house and where the sun was in the windows and thinking, this is the last time. And um, you can let that break your heart or you can let it lift it up and think, how beautiful is this? How beautiful is this? Yeah. Your book, um, I'm sorry. <laughs> this is, <laughs> the two of us in here, hardened journalists. Um, oh, yeah. I think of Emily Webb in our town. Twenty human beings <sighs> realize life while they live it. Every minute, do they? Uh, I don't know that I have found an answer to that, but I will say that this book is part of my attempt to wrestle with it and sit with it. The nature of the work you and I do, Scott, is wonderful, but it's ephemeral. You know, you and I do a show, and there are days when we nail it and days when we don't, and either way, we have to get up and do another one the next time around. And, uh, you know, a show from six months ago might as well be six lifetimes ago. And I wanted to really wrestle with one year in my life, the choices I was making, the deals I was striking with myself, and whether I got it right or wrong. Be intentional about it and remember it and let it stick. That's what this book is. Mary Louise Kelly, her book, It Goes So Fast, The Year of No Do-Overs. Thanks so much for being with us. It does go so fast. Thank you, Scott. Weekend edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Buying one chair of Bed Bath & Beyond now costs only 31 cents. Of course, that's a sign of a company in trouble near bankruptcy, but how low can this stock or any stock actually go? NPR's Lena Seljuk reports. 
10 years ago, the stock price of Bed Bath & Beyond reached $80. Earlier this year, it cost $5 a share. Now this is all it takes to be a Bed Bath & Beyond shareholder. We call this a penny stock when we're trading below a dollar. Blair DeGanay is a senior advisor at Ritholds Wealth Management. A penny stock sounds lousy, and it is. It's Bed Bath fighting for survival, warning of a bankruptcy again and again, then getting a lifeline from a lender or an investor, rinse, repeat. At this point, you're getting what I call the desperation capital. Aswat Damodaran is a finance professor at New York University. Bed Bath still has a few hundred stores and the Bye Bye Baby chain, but it's been facing pretty fundamental problems, losing shoppers and therefore money, struggling to compete online and lately to even keep its shelves stocked. Demodoran has an ominous view of its chances. Bed Bath & Beyond at this point resembles that character in a horror movie, the teenage boy or girl who pauses outside the door to the basement and they do what every horror movie character does, which is open the basement door. You know this isn't going to end well. But as long as there's a glimmer of hope for Bed Bath, Duganay says, It's pretty hard for a stock that's still trading to actually hit zero. As long as someone is out there in the market betting that Bed Bath is worth something, maybe it will turn around or even get acquired. You're going to have a price, even if it's one penny. Given months of bankruptcy warnings, these are long odds, which is why Duganet suspects at this point, people trading Bed Bath shares probably aren't really thinking of the company's long-term future. Even traders who bet against the company are usually gone by the time you hit penny stock. That leaves mostly speculators, chasers of a quick profit. It's pretty easy for a stock to move a couple of cents, and that's a big percentage gain. You know, a pop from 35 cents to 70 cents, it's still a 70 cent stock, but you've gotten 100% return. This will not last forever. The NASDAQ, the exchange where Bed Bath shares are listed, will eventually kick out a company whose stock price stays under a dollar for too long. Getting delisted doesn't automatically mean shares hit zero and stop trading, but they usually go to a sort of dodgy flea market of stocks, what's known as over-the-counter markets, not a place for prominent healthy companies. And so Bed Bath is throwing every Hail Mary to avoid that. Thinking about every exit hatch that they can find because you're in life support here. The company's latest gambit is called a reverse stock split. It's a financial trick that fuses a bunch of shares into a single one, meaning fewer shares are out there, but each one is more valuable than before. Maybe no longer worth pennies, but back to a few dollars. Maybe this buys time and goodwill for yet another lifeline and keeps the basement door closed for now. Because in bankruptcy is when shares really can become worthless. Alina Salyuk, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Governor Maura Healey vows mifepristone will remain available in Massachusetts. 
The governor says on Monday she will outline a plan to maintain access to the commonly used abortion drug. Abortion remains legal in Massachusetts. But yesterday, a Texas federal judge ordered that the FDA suspend approval of mifepristone, and that may disrupt access. Events are taking place this weekend to commemorate the 248th anniversary of the Battle of Lexington and Concord. This afternoon, the Minuteman National Historical Park will hold a ceremony commemorating the capture of Paul Revere by British soldiers. The park is hosting programs throughout the month to observe the start of the American Revolution on April 19, 1775. It's 36 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today. Highs in the upper 40s. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app. Clark, where chef demonstrations of Wolf Appliances help you compare features and taste the results of ovens, cooktops, ranges, and more. ClarkLiving.com demo. And the Museum of Science, featuring Arctic Adventure, an immersive Arctic world exploration with technology as your guide. Tickets at MOS.org. On this week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, track legend Jackie Joyner Kersey warns us all, even though she's retired, do not think to mess with her. Because you know I got the fold-up javelin oh, in my yeah. bag. Yeah. And Peter Sagal join us for an all-star show with the greatest female athlete ever, plus Ed Helms, Bonnie Raitt, and our discovery of a comedian named Maz Jobrani. That's this week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Today at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples with services to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. From Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Hint's 25 flavors include blackberry, coconut, and blueberry lemon. In stores or at hintwater.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Scenes of Israeli police raiding Jerusalem's Al-Aqsa Mosque set the stage for a regional conflict this week. There was an outburst of militant rocket fire into Israel, and yesterday Israeli airstrikes on Gaza and Lebanon, and two deadly attacks in the West Bank and Tel Aviv. We're joined now from Tel Aviv by NPR's Daniel Estrin. Daniel, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Scott. And remind us about that raid uh, and the kind of impact it had and and details about the violence that followed. Well, when Israeli police raided the Al-Aqsa Mosque, they were trying to clear out men who had barricaded themselves there. And uh, the images that came out of that were shocking. Police were standing over Palestinians on the floor of the mosque, beating them repeatedly with clubs. This is what it sounded like. You hear a woman saying, oh God, oh God. And these jarring images spread throughout the region on social media. And what followed was uh, rocket fire from Gaza and surprisingly also from Lebanon. Israel retaliated. And then yesterday, two British Israeli sisters were killed. They were reportedly 16 and 20 years old. Uh, there was a, their car was shot in the occupied West Bank. And then uh, a 35-year-old Italian tourist was walking on the boardwalk in Tel Aviv near the beach. Palestinian rammed his car into him and some British tourists, and and he was killed. 
So now uh, Israel has called up extra police and military, and there are a lot of diplomatic efforts to try to bring calm because uh, this had been expected to be a volatile time. Yeah. And what in particular uh, has had people so concerned about escalation now? Well, remember, you know, during Ramadan, we have seen in the past Israeli police use force against crowds at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and it's caused war. This is one of the holiest mosques in Islam. For Palestinians, it also uh, symbolizes Israel's expanding occupation, creeping takeover of Palestinian areas. You have nationalist Jewish activists visiting this site more and more. It's uh, the site of the ancient Jewish temple. And and there was a small fringe group of, of Jewish nationalist activists who were calling to carry out a Passover goat sacrifice at that spot. Of course, that didn't happen, but the rumors spread and Palestinians gathered in the mosque overnight to confront uh, the Jewish visitors. They barricaded themselves with fireworks and rocks, and that's why police said that they wanted to evacuate those worshippers. Um, and that's when the police raided the mosque. But, you know, there are other factors here. We have a far-right security minister in charge of Israeli, the Israeli police. So there have been concerns of more police uh, force and harshly acting against Palestinians. You have uh, protests against Israel's plan to weaken the judiciary that make a lot of people concerned that Israel's enemies could see this as a great time to strike. And then there was this surprising rocket fire from Lebanon, which made a lot of people worried about a multi-front conflict dragging in Hezbollah and Iran. Daniel, what does it feel like there on this uh, this weekend of Ramadan, Passover, and Easter? Yeah, Scott, it's just really dizzying because, I mean, I was just out uh, on the Tel Aviv boardwalk and saw the pieces of the car that uh, carried out that deadly car ramming last night, and people are laying flowers and lighting memorial candles. And at the same time, you have people out uh, celebrating, you know, it's it's a lively time here, too. But uh, tonight, Israelis will be back demonstrating in Tel Aviv against this uh, government's plan to overhaul the judiciary. It's been a very controversial plan. And all eyes are going to be on the Al-Aqsa Mosque to see if there is more Israeli police uh, use of force there that could draw the, the region into a wider war. NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Thanks so much. You're welcome. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Few artists get rich. The works of a few more sell for millions after they die, but many artists, maybe most, spend much of their lives worrying about how to make rent. This is all reflected at a tense and telling moment in the new film showing up. A sculptor, Lizzie, played by Michelle Williams, confronts a fellow artist, Joe, who's also her landlord, played by Hong Chow. She's playing on a backyard swing when Lizzie asks about her hot water. I don't know what I'm supposed to do without hot water. My show's open on Friday. I'll be free to deal with it after that. I have a show, too. You know, I'm just... You're not the only one with a deadline. I know, but I have two shows, which is insane. Hey, give me a push. Showing Up is directed by Kelly Reichardt. She's known for films often set in Oregon, as this one is, that feature quietly powerful performances from women... So, of course, we wanted to talk with Hong Chao about her performance. She's just recently off an Academy Award nomination for The Whale and joins us now. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I have to ask this directly, and I know you're just playing a character, but why doesn't Joe just fix the damn hot water? Well, you know, um, Joe is somebody who can come up with a lot of excuses. <laughs> Which is where uh, some of the comedy of the film and, and their relationship springs out of. Um, it, it, 
it was really funny to do all of these things that keep us from getting our work done, whether it's deciding that you need to put up a tire swing and that taking up most of the day or just driving around Portland and, and meeting friends and, and having a drink, you know. So it's it's all of those things that an artist kind of needs to do in order to let the work sort of percolate. Um, but from the outside, it, it does kind of look like a lot of nothing. Well, is it a lot of nothing or does it nourish something in an artist? Well, that's, you know, that's that's the question. Um, I think it's it's different for for different people. Uh, what does productivity look like? And and that's very different for for an artist. Uh, you know, thinking of of actors, the work that I do before arriving on set doesn't really look like work to people <laughs> who aren't in in this industry. And so for for artists like our characters in the film, it looks very different from what you would imagine. It doesn't necessarily take place in the workshop or or a studio. How did you start acting? I never wanted to be an actor actually. I um I was very introverted when I was younger and I initially thought I would do something a little bit more solitary. I felt very comfortable writing and my father asked me what kind of job I would actually be able to get after obtaining a degree in creative writing. And so I switched over and uh, majored in film uh, production because I thought that film school would teach me a trade. And I just fell into acting, I guess, through improv classes. Uh, I, I think I was intrigued by the preparation that an actor has to do in order to tell a story and, and contribute to a film in that way, because I had always looked at it from from the other side and not, not from being inside of the movie. And you mentioned your father. May we mention that your family had a tough road in life. Would that be a good way to put it? Sure. My parents are Vietnamese. They left Vietnam in 79. They were a part of the mass exodus after the war. Uh, they left by boat. Uh, my mom was six months pregnant with me. It was a very harrowing journey that they went on. A lot of people say that their lives sound like a movie, and I agree. Um, my dad was shot leaving the country and was bleeding on a boat for three days until they made their way to the refugee camp in Thailand, which is where I was born. And when I was pregnant with my daughter during the pandemic, when I reached six months, I was thinking, oh my God, I can't believe my mom <laughs> got on a boat and was ready to take this huge leap of faith that they would arrive safely somewhere. So it's incredible to think about. Does acting give you a chance to inhabit other characters? What I get out of acting might be different from what other people get out of acting. I, I don't really look to have some sort of out-of-body experience or to learn something about myself. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think I've heard some people, the way they talk about acting, it feels like therapy or something, and it, that's not what I get out of it. I just like being on set and I like being around other people doing film work. I'm just wondering if you've developed an answer in your mind now after playing this role and, and in a sense playing all of your roles. What fuels art? Necessity to 
express. It's just this this um, unsuppressible need and urge to spit something out, whether it's um, through writing, which is a little bit more accessible to people or more readily understood, or through a painting or, or art that's a little bit harder to define what what the artist is trying to say but it's still the artist is saying something and and with film i think a lot of times what filmmakers find so difficult is when they're doing interviews or doing press and people ask them well you know what do you want the audience to get out of this story or, or this movie um, what do you want to say and i think that if they knew how to just say it, they would just write an essay or, or or something like that. And this is their way of saying it. And it's just that, this need to put something out there, it can come out in all different shapes and forms and colors. And film just happens to be one of my favorite mediums for that expression. Hmm. Hong Chao is uh, one of the co-stars of the new film showing up in theaters now. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. This is lovely. We don't want to freak you out, okay? But your plants might be saying things at a frequency you can't hear. However, some animals and insects can hear the ultrasonic sounds emitted by plants. The evolutionary reasons for these noises many mystery, but researchers have some theories. Hear that conversation tomorrow on Weekend Edition Sunday with Aisha. Tell your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. Terrence Blanchard made history last season when his opera, Fire Shut Up in My Bones, was the first work by a black composer staged by the Metropolitan Opera. Now the composer's other opera, a retelling of the dramatic story of boxer Emil Griffith premieres at the Met on Monday night. It's called Champion. Tom Vitale attended a recent rehearsal. In a hangar-like wood-paneled room at the Metropolitan Opera House, more than 60 artists, actors, dancers, musicians, directors, and stagehands are arriving for a rehearsal. Good morning, everybody. So this morning I want to work through Act One. Champion was jazz composer Terence Blanchard's first opera. It premiered 10 years ago in St. Louis, followed by productions in San Francisco, Washington, and Boston. But at the Met, says Blanchard, the staging has ratcheted up to another level. I can't even count the number of people we have in the chorus this time. We have 20 to 30 dancers. You put all of that together, plus a full orchestra and jazz ensemble, it makes for a huge production. And it's a production that includes a full-size boxing ring on the Met stage. Champion tells the story of Emil Griffith, a closeted gay boxer, in an era when gay people were outcasts, who rises from obscurity to become world champion. And, in one of the great tragedies in sports history, kills his homophobic arch-rival in the ring. The centerpiece of the opera is an aria called What Makes a Man a Man, sung by Ryan Speedo Green in the role of Emil Griffith. I wanted it to be free of time, you know. I wanted him to be able to express himself however he feels in the moment and have the orchestra follow him. I'm a big fan of Puccini. Sometimes the voice is supported by the strings, sometimes not. And with this aria, I try to take that approach. 
Over lunch at the Met Cafe, between three-hour rehearsal sessions, 37-year-old Speedo Green said his entire career has been about shattering stereotypes. You know, I came from a trailer park in the middle of nowhere, Virginia, and I'm singing at the grandest opera house, arguably, in the world. Anything is possible. And... Now, I want to break opera door's preconceptions of what opera can be. At the weigh-in for a championship bout at Madison Square Garden in 1962, Emil Griffith's Cuban opponent, Benny Parrott, taunted him with an anti-gay slur. Hours later in the ring, an enraged Griffith caught Parrott on the ropes and unleashed a torrent of blows that left Parrott in a coma he never came out of. The scene is reenacted in the opera. Edo Green trained for the role for more than a year. The six foot four bass baritone says he lost 100 pounds, down to 240, so he would look like a professional boxer. And he worked with former heavyweight champion Michael Bent to learn how to move and think like a boxer. I never thrown a punch in my life. So I had to learn all the defensive moves, all the slipping and weaving, and even realizing that boxing is pretty much the most physical version of chess that exists. Along with scenes of boxing, Champion is energized by dynamic dancing. Choreographer Camille Brown says Blanchard's shifting rhythms presented a challenge. As a choreographer, I have to be right there. He's 10 steps ahead, I have to catch up to him and be right there. So it's it's really been a treat, and it's definitely been hard work in, in the best ways. Champion is told in flashbacks. An older Emil Griffith, suffering from dementia, looks back at his career, filled with regret for the death he caused in the ring. Terrence Blanchard says his opera is ultimately about redemption and forgiveness. What he said in his autobiography really blew me away. He said, I killed the man and the world forgave me, but yet I love the man and the world wants to kill me. And to me, everything that I've written for this opera is centered around that moment because we have to get past all of this. You know, it's time for us to grow up as a society. The Metropolitan Opera has commissioned Terrence Blanchard to compose a new opera. He says he hasn't picked the topic yet. For NPR News, I'm Tom Vitale in New York. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru with the 2023 Subaru Forester, featuring standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and safety technology. Love, it's what makes Subaru, Subaru. Learn more at Subaru.com. From the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR. It is 36 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today highs in the upper 40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Jewish Arts Collaborative. Jewish culture is more than matzo balls, and J-Arts is here to explore with you. Visit jartsboston.org for events and resources. The Master's in Applied Economics at Boston College, offering an industry-aligned degree that can help drive better organizational and business decisions. bc.edu slash msae. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward, 
and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. Hi, it's Margaret Lowe, WBUR CEO, here with a big, big thank you to everyone who gave so generously during our spring fundraiser. You put us over the top and you helped fuel WBUR. How lucky we are to have you in our lives. If you didn't get a chance to give and you still want to, go to WBUR.org and click on the donate button. It's the one with the little heart next to it. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, Brandon Johnson, the mayor-elect of Chicago on building, political bridges, hiring police, and more. The Nina Totenberg on the ethical question surrounding Justice Clarence Thomas. Crash, the cat who plays an Easter bunny in chocolate ads and his clear view of life through one eye. And the musician Eli Paperboy Reed brings Cleveland blues and the music of Fred Davis to our ears after 50 years. It was hard for me to even believe that this was the real story of this guy who my dad worked in a factory with, and he played blues guitar, and he was an incredible singer, and I mean, it all seemed very apocryphal. First, our newscast at Saturday, April 8, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. The Biden administration is appealing a ruling by a federal judge in Texas that could soon block access to a major abortion pill. NPR's Sarah McCammon reports the issue could end up before the U.S. Supreme Court. The judge, Matthew Kaczmarek, who was appointed by former President Trump, has issued a nationwide injunction. Once allowed to take effect, it would pause the Food and Drug Administration's longstanding approval of the abortion pill Mifepristone. Lawyer Eric Baptist of Alliance Defending Freedom is representing anti-abortion rights groups who filed the suit. This is a significant victory for the doctors and medical associations we represent, and more importantly, the health and safety of women and girls. Major medical groups say the drug has a well-established safety record. Meanwhile, a federal judge in Washington has issued a competing ruling. Washington's Democratic Attorney General says he believes it will at least temporarily preserve access to abortion pills in the District of Columbia and 17 states who were involved in that lawsuit. Sarah McCammon, NPR News, Washington. Wall Street was mixed for the week approaching the long Easter weekend. NPR's Scott Horsley reports the Dow rose narrowly while other major indexes lost ground. The stock market was closed on Good Friday, so investors didn't have a chance to react to the latest jobs report. It shows U.S. employers added 236,000 jobs in March, fewer than the month before, while the unemployment rate fell to 3.5 percent. Wage gains have also been cooling. Over the last three months, wages have risen at an annual rate of just over 3 percent. If that pattern holds, it should help the Federal Reserve in its fight against inflation. While the Dow jumped more than six-tenths of a percent during the holiday-shortened trading week, the broader market was down. The S&P 500 index slipped a tenth of a percent, and the tech-heavy Nasdaq dropped 1.1 percent. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. 
Tensions are high in the Middle East where Israel and Palestinians have traded cross-border strikes. And last night, an Italian tourist was killed and at least five people were wounded in a car ramming in Tel Aviv. That after two Israeli sisters were killed in a shooting attack in the occupied West Bank. At the same time, the region is a centerpiece for multiple religious observances as Passover, Ramadan and Easter are all observed this month. NPR's Daniel Estrin has more from Tel Aviv. People are laying flowers and lighting memorial candles. And at the same time, you have people out uh, celebrating. You know, it's, it's a lively time here, too. But uh, tonight, Israelis will be back demonstrating in Tel Aviv against this uh, government's plan to overhaul the judiciary. It's been a very controversial plan. And all eyes are going to be on the Al-Aqsa Mosque to see if there is more Israeli police uh, use of force there that could draw the, the region into a wider war. NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Competing federal court decisions about whether an abortion bill should remain on the market will not affect Massachusetts state law. Abortion is still legal in Massachusetts, but the federal court ruling might limit the range of options here. Massachusetts Family Institute President Andrew Beckwith says he's grateful to see a judge move to stop sales of one abortion pill. This decision will, by definition, save lives. And because of its nationwide implications, it serves to restrain the rampant evil of abortion, even here in the Bay State. Governor Maura Healy says she will outline a plan on Monday that will preserve access to the drug in question, Mifepristone, also known as RU486. The city of Boston is getting help in its efforts to reduce gun violence. The University of Maryland's Center for the Study and Practice of Violence Reduction is providing technical assistance after holding a week of workshops with city departments and community groups. Minister Randy Mohammed says his mosque has been training volunteers to work for peace, but the approach will be different now. For many years, there's been many of us that have been doing the work in the streets, in the community, but have been working kind of like in silos outside of the system, if you will, working independent with no resources. Mayor Wu says the city will use the resources to coordinate a sustained approach to making neighborhoods safer. There's concern about more brush fires. Following more than a dozen of them through the state yesterday, the low humidity and wind and high wind created the extreme fire danger. Department of Conservation and Recreation Chief Fire Warden Dave Salino says these fast-moving fires will be a concern through the spring. They're fairly easy to put out because the ground is still damp underneath. But, but uh, they can move rapidly and they can do damage. A home in Burlington was destroyed yesterday. Salino says the brush fire danger will last until plants and trees fully bloom and the grass has sufficient moisture. He warns that if there's a summer drought, then that could contribute to more brush fires. It's 36 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today, highs in the upper 40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon, and thank you for being with us. Brandon Johnson was elected mayor of Chicago this week with 51.5% of the vote. 
Mr. Johnson is a former school teacher, teachers union organizer, and Cook County Commissioner. He will be sworn in on May 15. Marilek Johnson joins us now from the west side of Chicago. Mr. Marilek, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me. This was an awfully close election. How do you knit the city together? First of all, let me just say that I am incredibly humbled and grateful to have this opportunity to serve the city of Chicago. And I made it very clear on election night um, that individuals who do not agree with me are those who did not vote for me. Um, I'm going to be the mayor for them as well. And the way we unite this city is by reaching out and organizing around the city and making sure that everyone knows that there is a literal seat at the table for them. And that work has already begun, and I'm looking forward to uniting our city and bringing people together. So many Chicagoans said public safety, crime, was the most important concern. Now, by the time you went office, you said you you would cut not one penny from the police department budget. But earlier in the campaign, it indicated you would at least redirect $150 million from the police budget. You're mayor-elect now, soon mayor. What do you say? I'm saying the same thing, that the $150 million, it's not a cut. Those $150 million uh, will be allocated in a way that allows for smart policing. So, for instance, you know, we have to implement the consent decree that's going to cost us $50 million. I mean, that we're talking conservatively. In order to train and promote, you know, 200 more detectives, we're going to have to spend to do that. Making sure that we are actually implementing the laws that are on the books right? We're talking about red flag laws where individuals who have guns that should not have them. Mm -hmm. um, Those are all investments that we are making. So it's not a cut. It's about making sure that we're spending strategically so that the city of Chicago uh, could be a better, stronger, safer city. Will you hire more police to put them on the street? You know, well, certainly there are vacancies there that we are, you know, willing to fill. But, you know, as you know, uh, there's been an issue all over the country filling police vacancies. I mean, that's something that, you know, not just the city of Chicago is going to have to tackle. That's a challenge for the entire country. Um, You know, so those vacancies are not going to get filled overnight. I mean, it still takes two years to become a police officer. And quite frankly, we cannot afford to wait two years for public safety. That's why, you know, my plan is implementing, again, the consent decree and spending and investing to do that, making sure that we are enforcing the laws that are on the books. You know, I've talked you know, very candidly about training and promoting at least 200 more detectives. With respect, though, what do you say to people who say, well, 200 detectives sound fine, but they investigate crimes after they've occurred. What we need are police on the street now to prevent me from getting mugged or worse. Yeah, well, as I said before, first of all, it takes two years to become a police officer. You're not getting police officers overnight. So all due respect, what I say to them is let's do what works. Hiring young people, getting young people off the streets, that is going to keep us safer. Making sure that, you know, we bring closure to crimes that do happen, that is a deterrence. If you don't think you're going to get caught, there's a greater likelihood that you will attempt it again. This is why I'm also committed to providing mental health support for our communities, and that includes police officers. The stories that I've heard repeatedly about the lack of mental health support for everyone in the city of Chicago, and that includes law enforcement, uh, I'm going to address that because that's a real dynamic that has gone unfunded and unaddressed. And the faster we do that, I believe the safer our communities will become. 
as mayor, you're going to negotiate a new contract with the Chicago Teachers Union. You worked for them. They spent a lot of money to help you get elected. Can you be tough negotiating a new contract with a union that worked so closely to get you elected? My responsibility is going to be to build a public school system that works for everyone. My role is bigger than negotiating a contract. My children attend public schools. I'm a product of the public school system. So as a parent, as someone who has been a teacher, I take this very seriously. And of course, I have a fiduciary responsibility to make sure that the interests of everyone, that those interests are protected. But again, I want to make this very clear. My role as mayor of the city of Chicago is to offer a vision for public schools that work for everyone, regardless of where they live. And that is an incredible task, and I'm honored to have the responsibility to do that. Let me put it in real Chicago terms. What happens if the union says to you, look, we went all out for you. We rely on you to do the same for us. I appreciate that framing. Again, building a public education system that works for every single family is not going to be confined to a contract. And I understand why you're framing it that way, because that is the very simplistic form in which people are accustomed to discussing this. But remember, public education, particularly at the expense of the state, has always been an idea for the liberation of people. And that's what my commitment is. And as a parent that actually has children who attend the Chicago public schools, what I want for my family, I want for every single family. And that's my commitment to public education. Merrillick Brandon Johnson of Chicago, thanks so much for being with us, sir. Thank you very much. The Supreme Court is back in the news again, and not because of the law. ProPublica reported this week that Justice Clarence Thomas failed to disclose decades of trips on yachts, private planes, and resorts worth potentially millions of dollars that were paid for by a conservative billionaire. Justice Thomas said in a statement yesterday he didn't disclose those trips because, quote, he was advised that this sort of personal hospitality from close personal friends who did not have business before the court was not reportable. And he said because of new disclosure rules that have gone into effect for judges, he will, quote again, follow this guidance in the future. NPR's legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg joins us. Nina, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure, Scott, as always. What do we know? Well, these allocations center on Justice Thomas's friendship with Harlan Crow, a real estate magnate and GOP megadonor. And these are just some of the highlights of the ProPublica report. In June 2019, the Thomases flew on Crow's private jet to Indonesia for nine days of island hopping on the billionaire's yacht. That sort of trip would have cost him more than a half million dollars if he had paid for it, which he obviously didn't. Every summer, Thomas has now acknowledged he spends about a week at Camp Topridge, Crow's private resort in the Adirondacks. There, he hobnobs not just with Crow and his wife, but other Crow friends, big corporate leaders and conservative activists and influencers. The report used Federal Aviation Administration records to show that Thomas repeatedly has flown on Crow's private jet for other occasions, for instance, to speak at the unveiling in New York of a huge statue of the justice's beloved eighth-grade teacher. There, the justice publicly thanked the donors who paid for the statute. Guess who? Harlan Crow and his wife, Kathy. 
Now, Justice Thomas says he followed the rules as he was told to, but is this out of the ordinary? Well, I spoke to Stephen Gillers, the author of the leading judicial ethics text about this, and he said that while this is arguably legal, the key word is arguably. The code of judicial ethics that applies to all federal judges has rules that require reporting of all gifts and travel paid for by others. But until last month, those rules had an exception for private travel and hospitality paid for by a personal friend. Mm. So there's your loophole. Now, the Judicial Conference of the United States has just changed those rules this year to clarify, that's their words, that judges may not escape reporting travel that is paid for by someone else, and that even personal hospitality at a private estate must be reported if the property is not owned personally by the friend extending the hospitality. Here, according to ProPublica, the Crow Estate is actually owned by one of the billionaire's corporations. Do other justices do something like this, to your knowledge? You know, Scott, I've covered the court for almost 50 years, and I've never heard anything like this. The watchdog group Fix the Court has reported on a handful of trips that other justices have taken, mainly to universities to speak, where the transportation was not reported. But those seem mainly to have been oversights, whereas Thomas seems to believe that he has no responsibility to report these very lavish trips. And Crow told ProPublica that neither he nor, as far as he knows, any of his other guests have cases before the Supreme Court or discussed matters before the court. This uh, is another blow to the Supreme Court's reputation in recent years. How do they recover? Um, this is only the latest embarrassment for a court that's been buffeted by everything from the leak of the abortion decision to the failure to find out who did it and the failure to question justices the same way other court personnel were questioned, and as well the apparent inability of the court to reach a consensus on even writing a code of ethics for itself. And that's before you even talk about the court's very hard swing to the right, which lots of people support and other people don't, and it's gotten the court sort of in the crosshairs of public controversy even more than usual. And Piers Nina Totenberg, you'll follow all of it. Thanks so much. Thanks, Scott. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 918. And coming up in about 15 minutes, our conversation with WBUR's Martha Biebinger about the impact on Massachusetts of the legal wrangling over an abortion pill. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Longy School of Music's Gala Benefit Concert. April 19th, Paquito de Rivera receives the Leonard Bernstein Award. Tickets at longy.edu slash gala. 
The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. Informed communities, essential for healthy democracy. KnightFoundation.org and JBS Home Inspections, committed to providing impartial recommendations on home improvements and repairs. JBSinspections.com. I'm Luis Schiavone with these headlines. China says it will conduct military drills around Taiwan for the next three days, with Taiwan's president home from a meeting in California with U.S. lawmakers. Taiwan says dozens of Chinese fighter jets briefly crossed the Taiwan Strait median line. The Biden administration is appealing a ruling by a federal judge in Texas that could soon block access to a major abortion pill. Analysts say the issue could end up before the U.S. Supreme Court. President Biden is at Camp David for the long weekend with travel slated for next Tuesday to Ireland and Northern Ireland to mark the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, which ended years of sectarian violence. I'm Luis Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Eric and Wendy Schmidt. Through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. And from Carla Itzkovich, whose gift, in memory of Moises Itzkovich, founder of the Moises Itzkovich Foundation, helps provide public radio news and information to communities around the world. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. President Biden will visit Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland next week. His trip marks 25 years since the signing of the Good Friday Agreement, a deal that aimed to end conflict in Northern Ireland. Quarter century on, is it holding? We're joined by Katie Hayward, a professor of political sociology at Queen's University, Belfast. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me on, Scott. I, I realize this is a very broad question, but is the Good Friday Agreement seen as a success? Is it working? Well, most definitely, it's still seen as having transformed society in Northern Ireland. It really is unrecognizable in many ways to the society that we were living with 25 years ago. For a start, of course, a whole generation has grown up without the experience of political violence. There is still, though, some concerns that some of the things that we thought would have been gone by now, such as um, paramilitary groups are still in existence. We still have segregation. It sounds like it has moved from that period we called the Troubles to something more like mutual tolerance. I teach on this in, in Queen's University, so teaching young people who've grown up post-agreement. And one of the things I do with them is look at what the agreement actually says. And the things that they pick out are such um, words as reconciliation um, that they never really hear, particularly not when we're looking at the political scene and seeing quite how significant differences between unionists and nationalists continue to be. And indeed, the fact that those differences can mean um, we don't have day-to-day -day functioning democracy in the way that most societies, particularly in Europe, um, can expect as normal. Professor Hayward, I hope this doesn't put you on the spot, but do you have both uh, Catholics and Protestants among your students? 
Oh, yes. Uh, so our students are quite mixed. But I think one thing that surprises um, people um, from outside of Northern Ireland is the fact that when our students come to university, for many of them, it's the first time that they would have sat in a classroom with people from other backgrounds and other religions, because Northern Ireland is still fairly segregated, not just in residential terms, but also in education as well. So most children get educated in uh, Catholic and Protestant schools rather than integrated schools. President Clinton was very active in behalf of the uh, Good Friday Agreement 25 years ago, and I wonder if the U.S. is still seen as uh, as active in the future of Ireland. Very much so. People were very conscious of the significance of the input from the United States back in the really difficult days in the early 90s, and of course Senator George Mitchell played such a crucial part in facilitating talks between the political parties um, leading to the Good Friday Belfast Agreement itself in 1998. And I think the continued attention and care that the US administration has played across the years towards Northern Ireland is recognized as being quite remarkable given the size of the place. President Biden popular in Northern Ireland and the Republic? He does mention his Irish antecedents quite a lot. He does. I think the fact that President Biden is very proud of his Irish roots is uh, something that is very much noticed here and uh, many people appreciate it. And it's safe to say that um, many people are very much looking forward to his visit and there'll be a lot of celebration of that fact. Of course, there is a flip side to that. And in Northern Ireland, there are many British people as well. And some people feel not so welcoming, uh, slightly concerned that maybe he doesn't appreciate or understand the significance of British identity in Northern Ireland, and maybe he's he's not quite such um, a neutral player in that regard. Of course, one of the provisions of the Good Friday Agreement is is that there could be a, a referendum in Northern Ireland on their future. Is there much appetite for that, enthusiasm? So yes, so the one of the most amazing things about the Good Friday Belfast Agreement is that it was saying if it looks likely that there'd be a majority in Northern Ireland who want to see unification between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, then the British government minister uh, with responsibility for Northern Ireland should call a so-called border poll. What's been very evident since Brexit um, has been rising expectation of Irish unification. And this isn't just amongst nationalists and those who are neither unionist nor nationalist, it's also amongst unionists as well. And in most recent survey work, we see that people actually um, think that a United Ireland is more likely to exist in 20 years' time than the United Kingdom itself. The question is how people respond to that. And of course, for unionists, that's the opposite of what they would like to see. And so 25 years after the Good Friday Agreement, the need for sensitivity and recognition of the parity of unionist and nationalist British and Irish identities in Northern Ireland remains just as much a challenge and just as important as it was back then. Katie Howard, a professor of political sociology, Queen's University, Belfast. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. This afternoon on All Things Considered, Cheryl Strayed has thought a lot about the choices she's made, the life she's lived, and the choices that got her here. A fictionalized version of herself in Hulu's Tiny Beautiful Things, 
looks at regrets, gratitude, and ultimately, acceptance. There's nothing we can do about that life that we didn't choose, but salute it from the shore. Tune into that conversation live on this station's website at npr.org or on your radio. Telemedicine. Consulting a doctor remotely on a phone or computer is not new, but it has certainly grown since the pandemic. Proponents hoped it would reduce costs. After all, patients can see a doctor without stepping into a clinic. A new report from Kaiser Health News finds that doesn't necessarily mean patients won't be charged for using a healthcare facility. And after years of patient complaints, some state governments are taking a notice. Mark Ann Horaluk reported the story, joins us now from Denver. Mark Ann, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Scott. What is a facility fee when it comes to telehealth anyway? Well, Scott, you know, facility fees are fees that a hospital charges when you use their facilities. Uh, Some describe it as a walking through the door charge. And it's meant to help them pay for their overhead costs for staffing, equipment, computers, all the stuff they need to run their hospital or an outpatient clinic. And these can run anywhere from, you know, $50 to hundreds or even more than $1,000. I recently spoke to Brittany Tesso. She's a mother of two. And uh, in 2021, she needed to schedule a speech therapy evaluation for her three-year-old son, Roman, and was referred to Children's Hospital of Colorado. She ended up receiving a bill of nearly $700 from the doctors, the clinicians doing the evaluation. But then she got another bill for $800 from the hospital. She was confused about why she was getting a second bill. The whole evaluation happened over Zoom, so why the extra charge? What did the hospital say when she contacted them? Tessa called the hospital because she thought this was had to be a mistake. And when she got someone on the line, they told her, No, you pay the doctor's bill, but this is our facility fee. I got confused because I was like, well, I didn't come to your facility. We had a Zoom call, a telehealth appointment. And she was like, yes, but... um." The doctors and the specialists still have to use the hospital. It's, you know, it's kind of one of those situations where it's like, well, I'm sorry, but this is what we charge. And what did the hospital say was the reason for the fee? Well, hospitals say they have to charge these facility fees to cover their costs. And Children's Hospital of Colorado, for example, they don't employ their own physicians. They're staffed with doctors from the University of Colorado Medical School. So those doctors charge for their services, and that payment goes to the medical school. So if the hospital is in charge of facility fee, they don't get paid at all for that visit. But it's also a problem when patients go to visit to hospital outpatient clinics. They get charged a physician's fee by the doctor and then a facility fee by the hospital. And when a hospital buys an independent physician practice, all of a sudden patients who have gone to that clinic for years get charged an extra facility fee, sometimes more than doubling their costs overnight. I gather some states have obviously noted this and and are starting to question these fees. Yeah, absolutely. And I can start here where I am in Colorado. Lawmakers here have proposed a bill that would limit some of the facility fees hospitals can charge for primary care, for preventive services, or for telehealth. And it isn't just Colorado. Uh, Seven other states have already passed legislation or are considering limits on facility fees. And you can bet most other states are watching how those efforts will pan out. There is a federal bill to address this as well, but it hasn't gotten much traction so far. How do hospitals and other medical facilities respond to this? 
Yeah, hospitals say that, you know, if they can't charge these facility fees, they're going to have to close these outpatient clinics. And, you know, they say they acquire physician practices because those physicians are having trouble staying in business and they need the hospital to bail them out. And, you know, that's debatable. Hospitals also buy physician practices in part because it becomes another front door into their system and they can then refer those patients to the hospital for surgeries and inpatient care, for lab tests or imaging. And as consumer groups like the Colorado Consumer Health Initiative point out, hospitals are making billions in profits, even the nonprofit hospitals. Uh, UC Health, which is the biggest hospital system in Colorado, pulled in more than $2.6 billion in net income over the past five years. Mm. Mark, and where does all this leave patients? Yeah, patients are watching to see what will happen with the Colorado bill. Does it get passed and will the governor sign it if it does? But in the meantime, patients can ask before their appointments whether a facility fee will be charged and how much it will be. They could also look for an independent physician practice that isn't affiliated with the hospital system and therefore doesn't charge a facility fee. In markets like Denver, that can be hard to find because most of those independent uh, affiliated practices have now been purchased by or affiliated with hospital systems. When Brittany Tesso's son, for example, got referred to Children's Hospital for a gastroenterology appointment, she asked what the facility fee would be, having already gone through this once before. They quoted her a fee of $994 on top of what the doctor would charge. So she decided to take her son to an independent physician instead, and she only had to pay a $50 copay. Markin Horaluk is Colorado correspondent for Kaiser Health News. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Easter Sunday is for many an occasion for spiritual celebration, but pretty much everybody gets in on the chocolate. Maybe a visit from the Easter Bunny, or this year, the Easter Kitty. Crash, a one-eyed cat who was once astray as the winner of Cadbury Chocolate's 2023 Easter Bunny tryouts, a contest that is pointedly not limited to bunnies. Everyone wants to be the Cadbury Bunny. Had some tough competition, not including B.J. Lederman, who writes our theme music. There was Cypress, the beaver, Bunny, the dog, of course, Pink, the duck, and Stewie, an impossibly cute miniature horse. But Crash is a charmer who can high-five, strut through hoops, and, as it turns out, hold a pose like the Mona Lisa. Well, one of the things they had to do was they had to look at the camera for a certain number of seconds. I think it was like, I don't know, 30 seconds or something, and they had to keep looking at the camera, which for an animal is a long time to have him sit there and do that, but he did. That's Patty Cutler, executive director of the Simply Cats nonprofit shelter. She rescued the orange and white cat on the road at the site of a car accident, hence Crash's name. He lost an eye in that accident, but his personality is apparently undimmed. He really doesn't meet a person he doesn't like. He's just a very outgoing cat, which, if you know cats, is not typical. Crash's commercial has delighted viewers across the country. People now turn out to see him. So many, in fact, that... We decided this week that we had so many people that wanted to meet him that we have set up some meet and greets. So he's actually got appointments with people all week to come in and meet him. <laughs> Crash has perhaps helped the candy company, who's recognized his pluck and spirit, but also Patty Cutler to continue her shelter. 
The $5,000 prize will support Simply Cats with veterinary and supply expenses that go towards rescuing cats, like Crash. Patty Cutler believes that Crash's celebrity inspires an appreciation for pets who may look just a little different, one-eyed, bunny-eared, or both. They're all worth saving when you can do it. A fine message to hear on a holiday weekend for sure. And you're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Thanks for joining us on 90.9 WBUR's Weekend Edition. There is confusion this morning about the impact in Massachusetts of the legal struggle over Mifepristone. Yesterday, two federal judges, one in Texas and one in Washington state, posted competing decisions about an abortion pill that's been approved by the FDA for more than 20 years. Joining us to consider the ramifications for Massachusetts as we understand the situation as of now, WBUR's Martha Biebinger. Martha, to start with one key point, abortion is still legal in Massachusetts. Yes, Sharon. Nothing in these rulings affects state law. But the outcome could still have an impact on abortions here because mifepristone, the drug in dispute, is used with another pill in nearly half of abortions in Massachusetts. So what we have is a federal judge in Texas ordering the FDA to suspend its approval of mifepristone, saying the drug is dangerous, while a federal judge in Washington state says the drug is safe and effective and the FDA must preserve the status quo. So what that means, Sharon, is for the next seven days, while there's a stay on that decision out of Texas, both pills are still legal. After that, people may have to switch to using just the second pill, which is not in dispute. The single pill method is used in many states and around the world. Studies show it's safe, but a bit less effective than both drugs. Martha, abortion rights advocates in Massachusetts are responding to the Texas judge's move to restrict access to the medication. And what's Governor Maura Healey saying? In a tweet last night, Governor Healey wrote, Mifepristone will stay available in Massachusetts. You have my word. So what's happening this weekend is the governor's talking to abortion rights groups about a plan to maintain access to Mifepristone, which is also known as RU486. Healy says she'll outline that plan on Monday. The advocates she's talking to are angry about a judge in Texas telling the FDA how to regulate drugs and about the ways that confusion around these decisions may interrupt abortion care. Rebecca Hart Holder with Reproductive Equity Now also points out that Mifepristone has a strong safety record after 23 years on the market. It is a drug that is used by over 50% of people in the United States to end a pregnancy. We have reams and reams of data demonstrating how safe this drug is. But at the same time, Sharon, Planned Parenthood and other clinicians that provide abortion are ready to switch to that single pill method we just talked about if mifepristone is pulled from the market. And Martha, what are the local groups opposed to abortion rights saying about the prospect of some abortion limits coming to Massachusetts? They say it's time. Two of the leading anti-abortion groups, that's Massachusetts Citizens for Life and the Massachusetts Family Institute, say the FDA has made it way too easy to get abortion pills. 
And when they're not used with medical supervision, they can be dangerous. Here's Andrew Beckwith, president of the Mass Family Institute. We're grateful to see the court put a halt to the dissemination of these drugs. This decision will, by definition, save lives. And because of its nationwide implications, it serves to restrain the rampant evil of abortion, even here in the Bay State. The Biden administration filed a notice of appeal just after that Texas decision last night. So nothing is being halted yet. And this whole dispute may not be resolved until it's heard by the Supreme Court. WBUR's Martha Biebingert, thank you for explaining the impact in Massachusetts of these two contradictory federal court rulings on an abortion medication. Thanks for having me, Sharon. It is 38 degrees in Boston, plenty of sunshine today and highs in the upper 40s, low around 30 overnight. And then for Easter Sunday, sunshine and high tomorrow around 50 degrees. Monday should be sunny with temperatures reaching the low 60s. And here's an easy, convenient way to check in with WBUR. It's the new WBUR app. Tap and listen when and how you want. Download or update it in your app store now. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at SertaPro.com. That's Serta with a C. Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org. And Boston Ballet's Our Journey with La Mer, a world premiere about ocean preservation by choreographer Nanine Linning, now through April 16th, bostonballet.org. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. I'm Tiziana Deering. This is Radio Boston. I'm Scott Tong. I'm Deepa Fernandez. I'm Robin Young. It's Here and Now. And I'm Lisa Mullins, host of All Things Considered. We all thank you so much if you made a contribution to our recent fundraiser. And if you haven't had a chance to, you still can. Give monthly at WBUR.org. Thanks. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. A dramatic fight seems to be brewing in New York City over a basic question. What should the minimum pay be for workers who deliver food for apps, including Uber Eats and DoorDash? Deciding on that turns out to be far from easy, as NPR's Derek Kerr reports. 
Around 100 people raised their hands to speak in a public hearing that spanned more than four hours on Friday. The majority of them were delivery workers who've organized under a group called Los Deliveristas Unidos, the United Delivery Workers. William Medina spoke about the harsh conditions they faced trying to get people food. He said he feels exposed and vulnerable on the street, risking his life either in traffic accidents or being robbed. This is why he said he joined the struggle for a just wage. These workers earn an average of $11 an hour, and that's including tips. It's far less than the city's minimum wage. So in 2021, the city passed a law that would give these workers a minimum pay. It estimated that it should be nearly $24 an hour to factor in for things like gas and waiting for food. Anthony Capote, an analyst for the Immigration Research Initiative, believes that pay would be fair for the workers. He says the way companies pay the workers now, which is just for each delivery, is predatory. But it also encourages workers to go out under the most dangerous circumstances. During snowstorms, flash floods, heat waves, they go out and they deliver us food because that's when they know that they can get the most orders. After months of fighting and lobbying, the city cut the proposed amount to around $19 an hour. Workers and some lawmakers accused it of bowing to pressure from the gig companies. At Friday's hearing, the company said an hourly minimum wage could push costs up for everybody, leading to fewer orders and less work for delivery people. In comments to NPR, Grubhub, DoorDash, and Uber said the rule would restrict worker flexibility. But Antonio Solis, a leader of Los Deliveristas Unidos, said workers should get a fair wage. He says they work 12 to 13 hours a day just to be able to afford a little. Now it's up to New York City's leaders to decide. Dara Kerr, NPR News. And now it's time for sports. Reign at the Masters, a turning point for women's basketball and a big merger in so-called sports. ESPN's Michelle Steele joins us. Michelle, thanks for being with us. You bet, Scott. Masters tournament began on Thursday. Rain interrupted them yesterday. They're playing through what looks like biblical rain today. (laughs) Um, But I want to ask you about Sam Bennett, an amateur doing really well. Boy, what a story he is. Yes, Sam Bennett, fifth-year senior, out of Texas A&M, Scott reached second place after his second round on Friday. 1958 was the last time an amateur held second solo after two rounds. And listen to this backstory. His dad died of early onset Alzheimer's in, in 2021. He has a tattoo of his late father's final written message to him. And it says, don't wait to do something and he looks at it on his left wrist before every shot and he says he draws inspiration from that clearly he's drawing a lot of inspiration from it this weekend he's an easy guy to root for today Uh, but um, what a story he is but I I have to talk speaking of big stories I got to talk about the weather because mother nature might actually be the most dominant player today Scott temperatures in the 40s rain most of the day Yesterday, three pine trees fell near the 17th hole. Now, luckily, nobody was hurt, but play was suspended. And we've got 39 players completing their second round today, including Tiger Woods, who's right on the cut line. Uh, Luckily, Augusta has 
an interesting system with all these underground pipes and blowers to keep mm. the greens and the fairway landing areas dry. So that'll get heavy use today. So two big stories I'm watching, Sam Bennett and, and this weather. I, I got to say the Masters is on in one of the uh, one of the monitors we have on here in the studio. And they, they look like they're lobster fishing. Uh, the <laughs> players are dressed so... Uh, They'll need those green jackets for warmth. Sports story of the week, maybe the year. LSU beat Iowa, uh, women's championship, 102 to 85. Uh, think this game has an impact beyond just winning a championship? It sure feels like it, you know. Uh, if you watch the championship game between LSU and, and Iowa last Sunday, congratulations, because uh, we were all part of history. It was the most watched women's final of all time. And Scott, I got to say, I've been doing this for a long time. It was just such a uniquely mm -hmm. captivating tournament. And what's interesting for me as a media member is that it's really been a story all week. Uh, we had multiple days of debate over the, the so-called decorum of LSU guard Angel Reese. She was taunting Iowa star Caitlin Clark, gave her a little bit of her own medicine at the end of the championship game after LSU won. And Clark went on television and said the criticism of Reese was overblown. Guess what? Women can talk trash too. And it feels like this inflection point, Scott, where these, these talented women and their personalities are really fueling something like we haven't seen before for the women's side of the tournament. And a lot of these starters are gonna be next back next year. So it feels like women's hoops is just in a great uh, position to grow from here. Hmm. UFC, the Ultimate Fighting Championship and WWE World Wrestling Entertainment announced a merger this week. I guess there's just a lot of money to be made in watching people beat each other into the ground. Yeah, yeah. I hear they're, they're your favorite sports, Scott. You're oh, big yeah. the body slams. Sports, yeah. sports. Put that in air quotes. <laughs> well, uh, you know, combat sports is a big deal. Like it or love it. Um, loathe it. Ari loathe it, some of us, but go ahead. Yeah. Well, Ari Emanuel loves it. He's the head of Endeavor. He's the that's the company that owns UFC. They are paying big bucks for World Wrestling Entertainment, known, of course, as WWE. He's going to merge that with UFC. Guess how big this entity is? $21.4 billion. They're going to trade under the very apt ticket symbol TKO. It'll be interesting to see if we have any crossover between these two. But, Scott, this is a media rights play, right? Live yeah. sports are king. The idea is that maybe they roll up their rights. We get a big number for both. And we'll see. Could be a very formidable tag team business-wise. Michelle Steele of ESPN. Arr! Thanks so much, Michelle. Talk to you soon. <laughs> See you soon. Ah, Cleveland Blues. And the late blues musician Fred Davis. He often went just by Dave and was a dedicated and inspired guitarist. He was tragically killed in 1988 when he was the victim of an armed robbery at the age of 49. Much of his music, including what you're hearing now, hasn't been available in nearly 50 years, but that musical trove is available now in a new collection. It came out on Friday. It's put together by an old friend, Howard Husak, and Howard and his son, the musician Eli Paperboy Reed, each joined us now. Thank you both very much for being with us. Thanks for having us. Good to be here. Eli Paperboy Reed, let's begin with you, because, of course, you're an established musician and performer. How did you first hear about Fred Davis and the music? I was in high school. I had started to get into blues mostly through my dad's record collection. And as I got more and more into it, he started telling me the story of this guy that he learned to play the guitar from 
And it was hard for me to even believe that this was a real story of this, this guy who my dad worked in a factory with, and he played blues guitar, and he was an incredible singer. And I mean, it, it all seemed very apocryphal. Let's listen to uh, Winehouse. So Eli Paperboy Reed, you were you were listening to this just as you were becoming a musician in your own right. Yeah, you know, and I was learning to play. You know, I was playing along with records, and I was watching my dad when he would play, and he would show me these chord forms and kind of just techniques and you know little bass runs and things like that. And it's like, oh, this is how Fred Davis showed me how to play this. And then when we finally heard the music, I already was realizing that I was influenced by this music without ever having heard it before. And it was a really strange feeling. So let's get to that story. Howard Husak, your <laughs> senior fellow in domestic policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute, <laughs> not as well known as the blues legend as we know you to be now. Tell us how you met Fred Davis on the factory floor. I was working a summer job in Cleveland in the Cuyahoga Valley when the Cuyahoga was burning, and I would start singing along with the radio, this crazy young white kid who loved blues, and all these guys would laugh at me, and they said, well, you, you ought to talk to Fred over here. He really is a great musician, and I befriended this guy, first person I ever met who had been to prison, and... I begged him to give me guitar lessons, and he did that. And ultimately, I decided, this guy is so good, I'm going to take him to the attention of the right people and have him be rediscovered. It was when blues musicians were being rediscovered, whatever that means. And I set up a tape recorder with a band that I knew in my parents' living room in a little suburb of Cleveland, and I recorded the music that is just being released now. And all those years, I felt this incredible responsibility. He sent me a letter after the tape was recorded and said, do something with that tape. Yeah. And I always felt this pressure, responsibility to do something with that tape. I never lost track of those tapes. What happened to those tapes for 50 years? Why did it take so long? The, the answer is nothing would have happened to them except Eli became a successful musician in part because he could play like Fred Davis. And he made it possible for those tapes to come to being heard. Eli, do you feel a special charge to tell the Fred Davis story? I think there's no question about it. This is something that my dad and I have talked about since since I heard the tapes, since I heard the stories. It took me getting to a point in my career where people would pay attention if I said something was good. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It took a long time for me to get to that point. And, you know, now people respect my opinion about, about music and about the, the, you know, of the roots of American music. And, and if I put my seal of approval and, and, and put something like this together with the help of, of, of an amazing record label, people might pay attention. I want to listen to a little more Fred Davis. Let's listen to an acoustic version of Midnight is Falling. Midnight is falling And it won't be long 
Eli Paperboy Reed, what do we what do we hear there? What do you admire? What do you what tugs you along? Even now, listening to it, it feels like a ghost, you know, that this singing and playing with such a powerful emotional immediacy. You know, that was a moment in time in my grandparents' living room <laughs> that it was recorded on this on this tape. It, it, it's so ephemeral in that way. Yeah, I'm really glad you chose that acoustic version of Midnight is Falling. That's my favorite tune. And his singing is just piercing. Fred Davis, he did get some gigs around Cleveland, right, Howard Husak? Yeah, he, he eventually teamed up with a band that he called the Blues Express, mm-hmm. and they played around, and they played his original songs, like the one that you just played. Yeah. One of our producers talked to uh, his old bandmate, uh, Crazy Marvin Braxton, he calls himself, uh, and he had this recollection of Fred Davis. He's a very easygoing person, and he played the blues, and he loved what he was doing. And he gave, his, gave the band a, the best respect that a band leader could do. He was very good with the band. Yeah, he didn't like them to play loud. He didn't like that. I play the blues for you. Wow. Howard, what was he like? How do you hope people will get to know him? Well, I'm very moved by Marvin saying that he didn't like him to play loud because that was his advice to me, and I passed it on to Eli. Don't play too fast and don't play too loud. Those were his musical maxims. You know, he included me in his world, which was a revelation to me. By the way, his his grave was unmarked until a couple weeks ago when we bought a grave marker for it. And it says, Fred Dave Davis, musician, 1939 through 1988. Do you know about family? Any survivors? You haven't been able to track any down that I we're aware been able of, to track any down. right? I, I've I've looked through census records. He was born, believe it or not, in the Arkansas Delta. His family moved to Kansas City. His father worked on the railroad. He had at least one brother, and he went to the Lincoln High School in Kansas City, which was the elite school for quote unquote colored students at that time, a selective high school. This this was a a bright and talented person. Father and son Howard Husak and Eli Paperboy Reed talking about the life and the music of Fred Davis. Fred Davis's Cleveland Blues out as a digital release now. It'll be available on vinyl beginning April 22nd on Record Store Day. Howard Husak, Eli Paperboy Reed, thanks so much, both of you, for speaking with us. Thank you, Scott. I can't thank you enough. Weekend edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America. 
offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is NPR. Next at 10 o'clock, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is here on 90.9 WBUR. It's 38 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today. Highs in the upper 40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College, helping teachers to become agents of learning in the community through master's programs and licensures. Learn more at online.merrimack.edu. Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. And Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Experience springtime like nowhere else. See the bright orange nasturtiums in full bloom in Isabella's courtyard. GardnerMuseum.org. Populism is a defining political current in the United States. Resentment is at the heart of this populist drive. And around the world. Populism unifies the people by negativity. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Listen to On Point, Power of Populism, its global reach, authoritarian danger, and democratic promise. Our week-long exploration begins Monday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm WBUR State House reporter Steve Brown, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime on our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.